this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we conclude with the final chapter of My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 12 Salome Part 1 The Dance of Salome Part 2 The Vision of Salome I am glad that I have been asked to write this little book for the reason, if for none other, that it gives me an opportunity to explain what is the meaning that I wish to convey by my dance, The Vision of Salome, a meaning that has been dimly guessed by some hinted at by others, and perhaps more widely misunderstood by what in Jacobean times were called the groundlings than any dance in my collection. Part 1. This is the Dance of Salome. I want you to see, as I can, in imagination or memory, those apartments in the palace of Herod Antipas, by the will of his father, Herod the Great, the late procurator of Judea, tetrarch of Galilee and Peria, set apart especially for the use of the princess Salome, daughter of Herodias and granddaughter of the late procurator. You see the somber splendor of those pillared halls, strewn with rare draperies and Tyrian purple, the sumptuous couches to the decoration of which all Arabia had contributed her embroideries. Amid them the Princess Salome, hardly more than a child, fourteen I take her to have been, surrounded by the Galilean maidens who were her attendants, her playmates, and her slaves. Little she recked that these painted and embroidered stuffs were part of the marriage portion of her aunt, the daughter of Eretus, king and lord of Arabia Petraea, whom her uncle, the tetrarch, has put away from his that he might marry her mother, Herodias. I want you to try and realize what her life must have been, cloistered at the dawn of womanhood in the luxurious seclusion of an oriental princess. Did any thought of her father, Philip, haunt her mind? How long was it since she had known what it was to be petted by the father to whom she had been but an exquisite plaything? The memory of childhood is, thank heaven, short for such things, and the luxury of her uncle's house had become part of her life, part of herself. Only amid the soft glamour of her days had one harsh perplexing note jarred upon the harmony of her existence. Hardly had she become accustomed to her new surroundings, hardly become reconciled to calling Herod Antipas by the dearer name of Father, when she witnessed one never-to-be-forgotten day, the fury of her mother, the impotent rage that made her attendants, both male and female, cower before her, and in her own apartments the girls whispered, half fearful of being overheard and of being whipped, 
that this new luxury that surrounded her, nay, her very presence in the palace itself, had been denounced, that the vengeance of Almighty God had been evoked upon her mother by the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that the new marriage of her stepfather had been lashed with the denunciations of the Baptist John, John who had called with clarion voice the people of the land to the consecrating waters of the river Jordan. Can you not hear the frightened speculations of the little maidens behind the curtains of their hanging garden upon the palace roof? The Princess Salome sat surrounded by the maidens, their pastimes interrupted now and again by a burst of sound from the great halls of the palace far below them. It was the birthday of the all-powerful Tetrarch, and Herod made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. Suddenly the gong that hung at the entrance to her private abode reverberates with a great clang. A Nubian slave crouches before her. Bidden to speak, he delivers himself of the message that half terrifies and half enchants her. Remember, she was only a child. She must tire herself in the jeweled robes and delicate fabrics which are hers of right as a princess of the royal house, and repair to the great hall where she shall dance before the lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. This gift has come down to her, brought by them from Egypt, from the earliest settlers of the land whom she claims as her ancestors. It has been her pride, her mother's delight, the pleasure of her dead father in days gone by, and now of the great Tetrarch himself. He has spoken to his guests of the Egyptian wizardries of her dance. She must not shame his words. To hear is to obey. The rude, plaintive cadences of the native musicians restore her faltering confidence as she springs into the great hall, blind to the circle of inflamed eyes that devour her youthful beauty, she sees only Herod himself, and at his side his sister-in-law and wife, Herodias, her mother. For them, and for them alone, she weaves her most ingenious witcheries of dance. The hall grows filled with silence. A spell has come over the semi-barbarians, assembled to do honor to the festival of the Tetrarch, and it has fallen most heavily upon the Tetrarch himself. The music dies away in a wail of passion. The little figure lies panting in obeisance before the throne, and the great ruler, leaning forward, speaks with dull eyes and parched tongue. Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. She raises her hand above her bowed head in deprecation of so great a promise. Whatsoever thou wilt ask of me, he pants, I swear that I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. Then, dazed, frightened by she knows not what, that flames suddenly from the eyes of Herod, she takes refuge in her mother's bosom. What shall I ask? she whispers. And on the instant her mother replies, personal hate overcoming all other feelings or ambitions, the head of John the Baptist. Once more she bends, royal princess, though she be, before the throne of Herod. I will that thou give me, 
by and by in a charger, the head of John the Baptist. How can we tell what happened then in more pregnant words than those of the evangelist Mark? And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, and brought his head in a charger, and gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. Think of the terror of that moment to the child. She had heard of John as of a great good man who preached purity and higher things than she had ever known in the debasing luxuries of the court. Buoyed up by the excitement of her triumph, she had put the ghastly trophy of her skill into the hands of her mother. Then she had fled on naked, horrid, stricken feet back to the terrace garden of her apartments. With a terrified gesture, the attendants have been dismissed. She stands panting, aghast, her hands pressed to her young breasts. She raises them and, bowing her head to meet them, sees upon her naked flesh, upon the hands that seek her smarting eyes, the purple, sticky stain that she has not been able to avoid. It is the blood of the Baptist John. The sight turns her for a moment to stone. Then it brings the whole ghastly scene back as in a vision. Part 2 This is my vision of Salome. Drawn by an irresistible force, Salome, in a dream, descends the marble steps leading from the bronze doors that she has just flung to behind her frightened attendants. The same stone obelisk backed by the inky darkness of the cypress trees shut out the silver rays of the moon, and save for the flickering red light of the crescent flames that the slaves have lit, all is mystic darkness and to Salome's overwrought brain all is fantastic, vague. She lives again the awful moments of joy and of horror which she has just passed through. Alone in the gloom, the poor child's fancy assumes dominion over her. Slowly to the strains of the distant music, reminiscently she raises her willowy arms, the movement thrills her whole slender frame, and she glides as if in a dream. A voice whispers, Your duty, your duty, does not the child owe obedience to its mother? On, on, wilder and more reckless than ever before, she sees once more the greedy, glittering eyes of her stepfather. She hears again the whispered praises and encouraging words of her mother, and Salome, child that she is, realizes a power within her and exults. She sees again her triumph approach, her swaying limbs are in readiness to give way, when suddenly, from out of the somber death still hall, the wail of muffled distress, and a pale sublime face with its mass of long black hair arises before her, the head of John the Baptist. There is a sudden crash. She is horror-stricken. Suddenly a wild desire takes possession of her. Why, ah, why should her mother have longed for this man's end? 
Salome feels a strange longing, compelling her once more to hold in her hands this awful reward of her obedience, and slowly, very slowly, and with ecstasy mingled with dread, she seems to take up and to lay the vision of her prize on the floor before her. Every fiber of her youthful body is quivering, a sensation hitherto utterly unknown to her is awakened, and her soul longs for comfort. Hark! A sound of approaching feet. Frightened lest her treasure be taken from her before she has solved its mystery, she stands guard over it, and when the footsteps die away in the distant halls, her relief knows no limit. In the mad whirl of childish joy, she is drawn again to dance, dance around this strange, silent presence. Soon exhaustion breaks the spell. Salome, Princess of Galilee, lies prone on the cold, gray marble. The awakening is that of her childish heart. The realization of a superior power has so taken possession of her that she is spurred on to sacrifice everything, even unto herself, to conquer. Reared in luxury, her every wish granted since her days began, was it to be thought possible she would subject herself to the will of another, a stronger and an intangible force at that, without a fierce conflict? What passes in those few moments through this excited, half-terror-stricken, half-stubborn brain makes of little Salome a woman. Instead of wanting now to conquer, she wants to be conquered, wants the spiritual guidance of the man whose wrath is before her, but it remains silent. No word of comfort, not even a sign. Crazed by the rigid stillness, Salome, seeking an understanding and knowing not how to obtain it, presses her warm, vibrating lips to the cold, lifeless ones of the Baptist. In this instant, the curtain of darkness that had enveloped her soul falls. The strange grandeur of a power higher than Salome has ever dreamed of beholding becomes visible to her, and her anguish becomes vibrant. She begs and prays for mercy of the stern head, alas, without response. Salome flees in despair, and though her pride, her princely rank confront her, and she halts, it is but for a moment. The revelation of something far greater still breaks upon her, and stretching out her trembling arms, turns her soul rejoicing towards salvation. It is gone. Where, oh where? A sudden wild grief overmasters her, and the fair young princess, bereft of all her pride, her childish gaiety, and her womanly desire, falls, her hands grasping high above her for her lost redemption, a quivering, huddled mass. It is the atonement of her mother's awful sin. Many the silent centuries that have passed since this woeful happening, but throughout the peoples whose souls have awakened to the teaching of the divine Nazarene, the anguish of this tale finds echo in human hearts, and night winds breathing over Syrian deserts whisper to the pitying stars the story of Salome. The End